This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today to discuss ecological economics is Robert Costanza, Professor of Ecological Economics at University College London. Professor Costanza is considered, along with Herman Daly, the founder of the field. Professor Costanza's bio is posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, as is phrased, ours is an economy of unpaid or externalized costs. This largely means nature is viewed solely as a source of unlimited profit and gain, and economic byproducts, such as polluted air and water resources, are externalized, meaning the costs are borne by society at large, meaning no one. That our economic model is not successfully, as Professor Costanza wrote in 1989, addressed the relationships between ecosystems and economic systems, quote-unquote, meaning finite natural resources cannot support infinite economic growth, well explain the climate crisis. Forests and oceans are sources of unlimited economic gain, and fossil fuel combustion and the resulting greenhouse gas emissions are unpaid costs. As a result, we effectively treat our oceans and atmosphere as open sewers. With me again to discuss the transdisciplinary field of ecological economics is Professor Robert Costanza. So with that as background, let me begin by asking uh, Professor Costanza if you can provide a definition uh, of the field, or certainly more, far more substantive what I suggested. So, so how do we build a sustainable, well-being-based uh, based society? I think that's what ecological economics uh, is, is trying to do. It has three um, goals, if you will. Uh, first of all, uh, creating and maintaining a sustainable scale or magnitude for the economic subsystem within this larger global uh, and finite global ecosystem. Uh, so staying within what have been called planetary boundaries. You know, we know there are basic ecological constraints. So some, some of the best known ones are the, around climate, uh, but also around nutrient cycles, around biodiversity loss, et cetera. Some of the things you mentioned at the, at the beginning. Uh, <clears throat> having a fair distribution of wealth and resources, both within the current generation of humans, but also between current and future generations and between humans and other species. And finally, having an efficient allocation of resources. And like you mentioned, uh, many of the things that do contribute to our well-being are external to the market. So the market doesn't really do a good job of managing many of the, the important resources that contribute to our well-being. They're all external to the market. Uh, so we have to build mechanisms, institutions uh, that can supplement that, that kind of allocation mechanism and do, do a better job of allocating scarce resources. So um, that's it in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. Since you mentioned uh, in your last few uh, comments external or externalizing uh, costs, one way to describe this or discuss this is we have a problem, and this is in your writings, we have a problem with internalizing and externalizing costs. And you say further, what we need to do is internalize our externalized costs. Can you explain that? Well, an, an external, something that's uh, an external cost is an effect on people's well-being 
that's not captured, you know, in the in the uh, the market exchange that they're they're uh, they're engaged in. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, the conventional view is, well, yes, there are these externalities, but they're relatively minor, and we can kind of ignore them. Uh, the reality is, these days, and you know, we're in a whole new geologic epoch. Uh, called the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. because of the magnitude of human influence on the planet, on the climate system, on uh, on a whole range of things. So we can no longer ignore those externalities. They're huge. You know, we we did an estimate back in 1997 of the the value of um, all of the world ecosystem services, the, the benefits that that our natural capital assets provide uh, provide to human beings. It's an underestimate. Certainly, but it was larger than global GDP at the time. So these external externalities are are much bigger than the internalities these days, and to continue to ignore them uh, is really is really the wrong the wrong way to go. If our goal is really to produce, you know, a sustainable and desirable future, future based on the well-being of of, of humans and and the rest of nature, there are some some efforts to try to internalize those those costs. You know, climate. Um, carbon taxes, for example, uh, are one way to take into account the fact that that whenever we burn fossil fuels and emit carbon into the atmosphere, uh, there are costs to current and future generations that are not being picked up. If you if you continue to ignore those costs, you continue to build up the problem. So so um, you know building a, a carbon uh, taxing system or a cap and trade system would be one way to begin to internalize uh, that one particular externality. But I think. I think we need to go go much further than that as well. And you know, if if we actually implemented those kinds of systems, they they have been shown to work. You know, Australia had a system like that when I first moved there, uh, that was working perfectly fine. But um, the, the political system uh, came into play and and uh, and, uh, and reversed that. And, and now we see where we are. Right. Yes. Let me just ask one other way you get at this by way of explaining, and that is. You've written that um, uh, we do not recognize the importance of scale. Uh, this is another way to explain this. So can you um, uh, explain why that's a problem? Well, this gets at the uh, the planetary boundaries issue that I was that mm-hmm. I mentioned uh, mentioned earlier that um, we live on a finite planet. You know the world is not the planet is not getting any bigger. Uh, but our uh, resource consumption, our production and consumption uh, activities uh, are are growing, and um, <clears throat> that's the scale of the of the economy within this subsystem. So we have to recognize that that uh, that that's an issue. Uh, that there are fundamental planetary boundaries, and if we begin to exceed those boundaries, we're going to have um, <clears throat> you know uh, disastrous effects really on the on the future of civilization. Uh, so. Uh, it's a matter of living within those boundaries uh, and uh, managing the way we produce and consume things um, and uh, to to not exceed those planetary boundaries to stay within the the safe operating space as it's been called uh, for uh, for for humans on on planet earth right so I've read and I may have noted this in a previous uh, interview that since that's nineteen seventy or nineteen eighty we've exceeded the planet's carrying capacity. As, as you suggested, or the other way I've heard this phrase is we live as if we uh, have the resources of multiple Earths, as many as four planets, uh, by mm-hmm. amount of overconsumption of the limited uh, resources. Let's go, let's go to some uh, specifics here. I was particularly interested in, you had an article out 
um, with 11 other scholars, I believe it was last year, and this was on uh, coastal wetlands, uh, July 2021, mm-hmm. uh, the value of coastal wetlands for storm protection. I think that served as a very good explanation of trying to understand uh, a natural resource we, we do not give a value. In this, you do attempt to calculate a value. So could you discuss that research? Right. And we've, we've done this for, for um, many different ecosystem services, as they're called, and many different um, biomes and, and ecosystems. This was one particular one looking at the value of coastal wetlands for uh, storm protection. Right. So we looked at the, the historical data, you know, on, on, on hurricanes and typhoons um, going back to 1900. Um, we looked at the damages that each of those hurricanes caused. We looked at the, the tracks of those hurricanes and, you know, how many uh, uh, hectares of wetlands were in those tracks. And um, then we can build a statistical model uh, that said, well, how, how much of the variation in the damages can we explain by the variation in the difference in, in wetlands in the track of the storm? And it's a significant amount. And from that, we can say, well, if there were no, no wetlands in those tracks, how much more, how much larger would the damages be? So this is a, an avoided damage sort of approach um, to estimating the value of those, those coastal wetlands. I think we ended up with something around $450 billion a year is the value of global wetlands uh, globally, uh, you know, in terms of avoided the avoided cost. If they weren't there, those damages would be that much that much larger. Those hurricanes are getting more intense; they're getting more frequent because of climate change. So that value can only can only increase. Uh, you know, one approach to uh, protecting uh, coastal areas from from storms is you build build big levees or dikes or you know uh, seawalls. Uh, the problem there is that. They're very expensive. Uh, they, they deteriorate quickly. Uh, they don't do anything except protect from storms, whereas coastal wetlands produce a whole range of, of other valuable ecosystem services like recreation, like fishery. You know, there's a whole list of 17 different ecosystem services that are being provided. So they're, they're, that storm protection is one out of many of the, the valuable uh, products from those, those ecosystems. We have to, you know, begin to recognize that and say, let's use our natural capital assets uh, in a way to really enhance our, our sustainable well-being and design design a better world. Yes, thank you. I did note in your article you um, calculated for the U.S. You said $450 billion, uh, worldwide annually. For the U.S., yes, it was $200 billion, uh, in value annually in coastal wetlands. So yeah. thank you. for. You also note in the article that Right. We've lost 50% of our wetlands pre mention of the year 1900. The one I, right. the, right. the, the, more, the more recent uh, research I found particularly interesting was, uh, and this was a year prior in 2020, this is the Common Asset Trusts. So these Common Assets Trusts are entitled mm-hmm. to effectively steward natural capital and ecosystem services at multiple scales. So this preceded the uh, wetland study, but I think, the wetland study is an example of what could become uh, or could be defined as a common asset trust. So I thought this was particularly interesting and valuable. Uh, can you give us an overview of, of this? And you mentioned uh, in context of what uh, Costa Rica has been able to do. Right. Uh, well, the idea, the idea here is that many of these ecosystems, the natural capital and the services they provide, 
are, are not amenable really to, um, to privatization, uh, to being managed by, by markets. They're not rival and excludable, uh, types of, types of goods. And, uh, and, you know, and part of the problem is that in the past, we've thought of them as open access resources. Barrett Hardin's, you know, classic paper on the tragedy of the commons was really about the tragedy right, yes, of yes. open access, uh, to these kinds of resources. Uh, so, so we have to manage them in a, in a way. Eleanor Ostrom has done a lot of work on how to manage. In fact, she won the Nobel Prize in economics a few years ago for her work on how to, how traditional cultures have managed um, common resources sustainably and well. And this paper you're talking about, uh, we try to bring uh, bring in her sort of eight guiding principles for what you need to manage to manage a commons and sort of update them into. And, and build a, um, uh, a a new kind of institution, uh, really that could that could handle that. So this idea of a common asset trust says that uh, those assets should be managed as commons, but they have to be um, limited access. You know, so there there have to be property rights attached to them, but the property rights are not private property; they're community property, and that <clears throat> those communities then need to work together. They need to cooperate. And build the kinds of rules and regulations and norms uh, for how how to best manage that resource as a as a commons. And part of that can be uh, to build a trust fund, you know, that that uh, where uh, those actors within the the uh, the resource that that damage that resource, you know, need to contribute or pay for those damages into the fund. And that fund then could be used to to enhance the um, the asset. Uh, to, to rebuild, to, to restore the, the natural capital assets. Um, <clears throat> some of the what have been called payment for ecosystem services systems uh, in the world, many of them, I think, function uh, sort of like a common asset trust already, particularly the one in, in Costa Rica. Uh, if there's not a market exchange going on, the, the payment is to farmers, you know, to um, uh, they pay the, the opportunity cost. They pay them a bit more than what they could make raising cattle to plant trees and to produce uh, ecosystem services. So they're they're man- trying to manage the the uh, the forest ecosystems, you know, as a as a community asset. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to uh, expand that and and say, well, we should look at the whole country, really, or all of the natural capital assets in the country, not the private property, but the the uh, the, the common property uh, should be handled as a as a common uh, asset, the com- common asset trust. Uh, so there's some some work going on now to try to to um, the next next version of that uh, PES system in Costa Rica will will hopefully be more of a, a national level uh, common asset trust. Okay, thank you again. Uh, I do want to ask about these other uh, ways of measuring uh, economic progress or growth. But before I get to that question, of course, I do want to ask you specifically about how this work relates to the climate crisis. And, uh, I mean, fairly in- immediately or intuitively, you could see that it does. So to the extent this um, field or this approach is being applied uh, to global warming, could you? Uh, what's your understanding or what successes have we had in application? Well, I wish there were more. But <laughs> of course, yes. Uh, and I guess I mentioned... <laughs> Because I think we're we're um, uh, we're not making progress nearly as quickly as we should be, and I can say a little bit more about that uh, maybe in a bit, because uh, we're you know uh, thinking about it more as as an addiction to the current kind of growth at all costs economic paradigm. 
uh, but but certainly the you know one of the planetary boundaries that I mentioned was um, was climate. Um, you know, everyone on the planet, all the in fact, all life on the planet depends on um, having a stable climate. So um, that that obviously is something that's uh, uh, that needs to be that needs to be dealt with. We need to stay within you know that the, the range of of climates that will allow um, human civilization and and other life to to continue. The fact that the current current policies and the current market system and current current politics are not really uh, taking that adequately into account, I think is a real problem. Um, like I said, I think um, one way to think of it is is as an addiction. You know, we know this, we've known this problem for for decades now. Why haven't we done anything um, about it? Uh, part of it is that it's you know we're we're habituated uh, to uh, the the kind of behavior that that's going on. We we look at the short term. We don't look at the at the long term. Um, is there anything we could learn uh, from what works to overcome addictions? You know, at the individual level, that might work at the at the societal level, you know, because we know that the worst thing you could say to an addict is, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. You've got to stop doing this. It's just, you know, it's going to kill you. You know, <clears throat> same thing applies at the societal level, but, but, uh, you know, it's true in both cases, but it doesn't tend to change behavior. In fact, it gets a, usually a, a negative, you know, denial kind of, kind of feedback. And that's what we're, that's the kind of response we've been getting. So one um, therapy that seems to work well at the individual scale is something called motivational interviewing, which instead engages the addict in a discussion of their life goals. You know, what do they want to achieve with their life? Uh, take it out of the, the current problem into the, the future. And once you've established that, uh, then that can motivate uh, the, the kind of behavior change. You know, if that's, if that's your, that's the kind of life you want, it's what you're doing now really helping you to get there. And if not, maybe you want to change your behavior. So the the obvious analogy at the societal scale is well, how do we get society to talk about uh, our shared life goals? You know, how do we build a shared vision of the kind of world that that we all want? Um, I think there's been some progress in that regard. The the UN Sustainable Development Goals, for mm -hmm. example, I think is a step is a step in that direction. Uh, you know, and all the UN countries have signed on to that list of you know 17 uh, goals that that include protecting climate and protecting life in, on the sea and on land and you know economic growth is still part of it uh, so one of them but it's only one one of 17 and it's got some modifiers attached to it as well um, you know but it's reducing poverty reducing hunger you know reducing inequality I think all of the things that, that go into a sustainable and desirable future are kind of packaged packaged in there but I think the uh, <clears throat> the problem is that hasn't really engaged the broader the broader society. How do we get uh, you know everyone in the world to start thinking about the kind of world that we want and building that that shared that shared vision? That, that I think is the first the first step in the therapy uh, to overcome this this addiction to to uh, sort of GDP growth at all costs. And I'll. I'll go on and talk about why why gdp is not the right the right goal to be pursuing right. yes yes i was going to um, ask you GDP about this well-being index yes, yes. <laughs> please yeah yeah so i mean gdp was never designed as a measure of societal well-being you know the initial um, architects of gdp warned against using it for that purpose all all it's really measuring is um, you know, uh, production and consumption in the marketed economy. How much stuff are we producing and consuming that's exchanged for money? 
you know, that's, those are all things that we, that we need and use every day, but it's not everything that goes into, into producing uh, well-being. And some of the side effects of that production and consumption are, are also quite, quite negative. Uh, so there've been, and I think there's, there's a growing recognition, you know, that, that GDP has been misused as a policy goal, it's measuring, you know, something, uh, but, and, and it's important stuff uh, to know, uh, but it's not, it's not the be all and end all. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, uh, you know, not deal with climate because it might have a, a small effect on, on GDP. GDP does not, is not the only thing that contributes to, uh, to human well-being. So what does? How, are there better measures? Um, there's a whole range of alternatives that have been uh, been put, put forward. Um, <clears throat> one of them uh, that I've worked with is something called the Genuine Progress Indicator, uh, which uh, starts with personal consumption expenditures, which is a major component of GDP, but then it, um, it adjusts those for income distribution uh, because the way, you know, inequality it has a major impact on on well-being, and we know that you know a dollar's worth of income to a rich person doesn't produce as much well-being as a dollar's worth of income to a, a poor person. So if you're talking about welfare or well-being instead of just income, and that's all GDP is measuring is income, uh, then you have to worry about how that income is distributed. That's a really important uh, component of, of well-being. And then it adds a few things that are left out, like the value of household labor, the balance value of volunteer work. Obviously, these are these are good things, but they're not picked up because they're not marketed. And it subtracts a whole bunch of things that, that should really be considered costs. You know, the cost of air and water pollution, the cost of crime, the cost of, of traffic, uh, traffic accidents, et cetera. There's like 26 different elements that go, go into it. Um, not the ultimate measure of well-being, but, but I think much better than GDP by itself. And at least it's getting at the net value of this, this economic production and consumption. The interesting thing is, you know, when you apply this GPI measure uh, to different countries around the around the world, uh, we find that it was tracking uh, GDP. GDP and GPI were tracking each other, you know, for a while from the post-war period until about 1980 or so. Since then, they've started to diverge, and GPI has leveled off or declined in in many countries and globally, even though GDP has continued to go up. You know, so we're now we're now pursuing what uh, Herman Daly has called uneconomic growth. The economy is still growing. It's not really economic because it's not really improving well-being or wealth um, more broadly conceived. When you take into account the the uh, the external costs, you know the the side effects of that of that growth. So we're following the wrong the wrong lead here, uh, and have been for for quite a while. We're we're really, uh, like I said, addicted to to this GDP growth, uh, even though. Uh, the results are are, uh, are are not really positive, and I think people around the world are feeling that. You know, most of that GDP growth in the in recent years has been going to the top, you know, point point one percent or point zero one percent of the of the population. So it's not really being well distributed, and that's one of the things that the GPI picks up. You know, that income distribution is is really getting much worse, and has been getting worse since you know for for uh, well since around 1980. Um, so, um, and there, there are other uh, potential measures of of, uh, of this as well. Another um, area of research that's that's come about in, in the last few years is, uh, is is research on subjective well-being, as it's called. You know, so they ask people in surveys, you know, all things considered, you know, how satisfied are are you with your life on a scale of, of one to ten? And they mm-hmm. 
asking these questions to people all over the world, you know, for uh, for several years now. And and it's clear that, you know, um, and, and then trying to understand uh, what causes differences in their variation in those in those reported life satisfaction. And the uh, the World Happiness Report, for example, uh, reports that that uh, GDP by country, you know, explains maybe 10 percent of that variation in life satisfaction, uh, whereas the rest of it is explained by variations in, in social well-being and trust and and, uh, and other and other sorts of, of factors that so <clears throat> there's the whole field of what's called positive psychology as well that's trying to understand what actually does contribute to people's people's sense of well-being and uh, it recognizes that that's a you know it's a much more complex uh, set of factors than simply the more you consume the better off you are uh, so you know we need to really start taking a lot of that kind of research more seriously. And that's, that's, I think, what ecological economics is trying to do. How do we build a much more transdisciplinary um, understanding of, of what contributes uh, to well-being, the well-being of humans, the well-being of, of, of society, the well-being of, of uh, the rest of nature? And uh, how do we use that, that understanding to help, help build a better world? Well, that was a very rich answer. Uh, I, I genuinely, you, you, you analogized to individual, uh, what can we learn from individual therapies and, and motivational interviewing? So that was your 2016 article, Overcoming Societal Addictions, What Can We Learn from Individual Therapies? Uh, relative to um, increasingly right. grotesque uh, economic inequality, I just uh, put this in a um, chapter I'm writing uh, it was an Oxfam 19 study for Davos. 26, the richest 26 billionaires, their total wealth is equal to half the world's population, over three and a half billion yeah. people. So uh, that that should be a cause of concern. And relative to uh, diverging GDP and GPI, you said beginning in the 80s, uh, that not surprisingly coincides with uh, the fact that uh, we've had uh, decreasing life expectancy in the U.S. for several decades, beginning in the 80s, and now it's the case that 38% of uh-huh. the population in the U.S., and these are uh, working age, mostly working age uh, men, their all-cause mortality is down 25%, and that's, that decline started in the 80s. So all these, uh, all these things uh, make sense in that they all sensibly align, rather. So um, right. I, I do want to ask, since you're in London, and I look, I spend a lot of time on the healthcare sector's contribution to the climate crisis, um, and the healthcare industry has done next to nothing on this uh, in the U.S. The U.K., of course, since 08, the National Health Service has been trying to reduce its carbon footprint. There's some studies showing uh, over a 1990 baseline, it's reduced its emissions by 60%. So it looks like, and of course, NHS is the only large system in the world actually methodically uh, uh, pursuing this. Um, and uh-huh. also, to, to make note of, of the difference, the UK, at last I looked, is down to three coal plants, although they have one-fifth of our population, we're something like 280 coal plants. Um, so it seems the UK is much further down the road. Of course, the Prime Minister of Scotland is noted for what she's trying to do. Um, so I would have to think you're right. more encouraged about what's going on there than here. Well, 
Um, I am actually, <laughs> although I've only been here in the UK um, for what three weeks now. <laughs> so I've just started this job at University College London. Uh, before that, I was at uh, Australian National University mm-hmm. for the for the last nine years. Um, and you're at University so, of Maryland. Um, but I think that's. And I was at the University of Maryland yes. before that, and the University of Vermont after Maryland. So uh, I've been at several universities around around the U.S. Um, but yeah, no, I think the U.K. is uh, doing 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 better, I guess, uh, than than many other places. And I'm particularly encouraged by Scotland and um, and uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the, the first minister, right. yes. uh, started a, um, a an initiative called the the Wellbeing Economy Governments. And she has a great TED talk. If you want to uh, take a look at that, on on the importance of shifting, you know, our primary government policies uh, toward the goal of of well-being and not just and not just GDP growth at all costs. And that initiative um, now includes uh, New Zealand and um, Wales and Finland and Iceland. Yeah, Iceland. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's growing as well. And so other countries have, will will hopefully be be joining that initiative. Um, and uh, I think that's that's a significant a significant change. Now, one day we'll have meetings of the, the We 7 or the We 20 instead of the, the G7 and the G20, uh, where governments come together and say, how do we how do we actually improve well-being for our citizens and 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 uh, and, and for the planet as a as a whole? Uh, so that's that's encouraging. Well, thank you. And this um, it goes beyond the governments. There's there's a group called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance that have been involved in, in helping to get get started. That's trying to to bring together uh, all of the various groups around the world. And there are, I would say, literally thousands of groups that are all you know uh, saying similar kinds of things to what to what I've been talking about. I think there's a general recognition uh, that the path we're headed on is is not sustainable and it's not desirable. And we need to, and we need to change, and we need to change relatively soon. Um, and we need to build a society that that really is is uh, better for for people and the, and and the planet. So there's, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not the only one saying this, but uh, all of those different groups are are not saying it in the same language. They're com- in, in many cases competing with each other to, you know, for funding. How do we bring them all together? Uh, what's the what's the glue to to make it clear? That I think these this vision, you know, is already uh, shared uh, by by probably a majority of the, the people on the planet. You know, so as I said, to overcome this addiction, we've got to build that that shared vision. We have to get people to recognize that in fact uh, they're not the only ones uh, thinking this way. It's a much broaderly, it's much more broadly shared uh, set set of ideas than uh, than most people probably imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Professor Costanza, we're at our time, so I realize this was uh, an overview and discussion, but I think uh, you made some very important substantive points here, and if we could continue this, maybe uh, at some point uh, down the road and see what progress we've made uh, in this would be uh, very much appreciated. So with that, uh, Professor, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.